The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Thank you, and thanks everyone for joining us this afternoon. My name is Anne O'Reilly, and with me is David Harrow, Portfolio Manager for the Oakmark International Fund and the Oakmark International Small Cap Fund. Like in past calls, our format is to have David make introductory comments, after which we will open the line up for your questions. Before David begins, I want to remind everyone that manager commentaries and portfolio holdings have been updated for the first quarter and are available on our website, oakmark.com. And now, let me turn over to you, David. Thank you, Anne, and thank you, everyone, for joining us on this call. Um, both strategies, the International and the International Small Cap Fund, had a good absolute and good relative returns. The International Fund was actually kind of the star for the quarter, performing almost 14% versus an index that did just eight. Um, but the International Small Cap Fund also beat its index. It performed just uh, under 6.5% versus an index that did just um, right around 5%. So both strategies had relatively good quarters. As I mentioned in the uh, quarterly report that has just been posted, a lot of the strength really came from what we're seeing is a continued recovery in a lot of our European equities. Um, even, even with the uh, little disturbance we had in March with our financial stocks, um, even with this, um, a lot of the financials still were up for the quarter, even though they had a weak March. Um, and the industrials and some of the other related businesses also did quite well. And this kind of extends the gains that we had since the fourth quarter. We had a very strong fourth quarter, as you recall. Uh, and this was versus a very weak third quarter of 2022. And I would highlight my... Uh, commentary in the third quarter, commenting on why we were invested in European equities. And, and quite simply, it was because this is where we found value. And it was kind of rough and tumble in, in that quarter, especially in August, September, where people were fearful of high energy prices and an economic slowdown and the impacts of the war. Um, and notice that we continually said that we are not seeing this in business conditions. Businesses certainly weren't booming, but we did see businesses able to compound um, earnings growth. And so that was nice to see. Um, share prices were down quite aggressively during this period in 2022, whereas earnings went up, which meant valuations contracted. And for us, that meant opportunity. And now we're starting to see uh, some of the benefits of this um, attractiveness that we have found in European equities. Um, if anything, the situation in Europe has, has actually gotten better. Uh, as you, if, if any of you follow energy prices, the prices of natural gas have collapsed in Europe. And this is mainly because uh, they have been able to find new supply from everywhere from Norway uh, to the U.S., and they've expedited uh, liquefaction, deliquefaction plants. 
And you can't underestimate the impact that conservation has had. Uh, some estimates I see 15 to 20% less demand because of conservation efforts. All this has led to a complete collapse. In fact, prices are significantly lower for natural gas than they were pre-war. And at the same time, another positive benefit that's happened for European companies is, as you know, many are exposed to China. And with the Chinese economy finally reopening and picking up some steam, European companies should benefit. In the meanwhile, the spread, the valuation spread that we see, uh, you can almost see it in our portfolios. I mean, the international fund trades at uh, 11 times earnings and has an average ROE of around 15%, um, very attractive valuations. International small cap fund trades at nine times earnings. Actually, international projected PE is 10 times earnings. And there's an average ROE of 18%. So the value proposition that we see in these companies um, in our portfolios still looks very strong. Um, one last thing I'll say is that I always get asked this question as of today, and it flip-flops, as you know. The international strategy, international Oakmark International Fund trades at around 52 cents on the dollar, which is kind of near a, a, a typical low, and the international small cap fund trades at around 49 cents on the dollar. There were two ex or three exceptional periods where these numbers really sank below their, their trends. Uh, one, one was, of course, in March of 2009. One was in March of 2020. And last August, as I discussed last October, we also hit very low levels in the, in the low to mid-40s. So today we're, we're actually seeing um, uh, a little bounce from where those lows were, from where those exceptional lows, but the portfolios are still trading very attractively. Finally, I write extensively about our, our, the financials and the financial situation. We feel very, very good with how we're positioned. Literally every single one of the financials that we own are overcapitalized, are increasing dividends, and are buying back their stock. As I look at companies like BNP, Bessa Sao Paulo, uh, Lloyds Bank, um, uh, Julius Baer and the Small Cap Fund, uh, just about all these companies have excess capital and have d done just fine weathering the storm, which I believe was more localized and is due to specific company situations as opposed to sector issues. Having said all of that, quite a mouthful, I will open up for questions. We're here for your Q&A, so feel free to ask away. Hey, David, thanks so much for the call. Um, just a quick question regarding... Um, the revenue outlooks for your companies in terms of what management's been saying. Obviously, you know, we all know about inflation and, and uh, many of your companies, uh, if not all, probably have tremendous pricing power. But I was just wondering, given what we keep seeing uh, um, with inflation both in Europe and here, although I, I do know that in Europe wages, wage inflation is yes, is less than, than here and perhaps less sticky than here. Um, are you hearing, you know, any uh, concerns regarding, you know, revenues over the coming year or two, given, you know, consumers being, you know, tapped out or maxed out or kind of waving the white flag given, you know, inflation just kind of taking up much more of their typical, you know, spending relative to budgets or, uh, or, or, or no, that's not been a, a, 
a materially new focus of conversation, whether uh, business dealing with other businesses or consumers. And I appreciate your time. Yeah, I mean, when we look at, say, some of our top holdings across the various strategies, actually what we're starting to see is companies are beginning to, after getting kind of hit by inflation and at times not being able to immediately pass on price increases, now we're certainly getting into this stage where companies are in a position to start passing on price increases. So for the most part, we're seeing a fairly acceptable, like I said, businesses aren't, we're not in boom times, but we're also not anywhere what appears to be a recession. I mean, the European industrial production numbers are starting to pick up a little bit of steam. We see it in Asia, um, South Korea. Um, There is some issues, of course, with the semiconductor cycle because of, of semiconductor pricing. That's more of a specialized problem. Some of the healthcare companies that have been unable last year to pass along price increases and the auto suppliers, same thing, are now able to do so this year. So we're not seeing a big problem with uh, revenue gaps or revenue holes to date. Got it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. Hi, good afternoon. Um, on uh, CNBC today, they gave a lot of publicity to uh, Warren Buffett's continued investment in Japan, and I believe you're you're pretty underweight there. So I was just curious what your kind of perspective is in terms of looking for opportunities uh, there, and you know how the yen and yield control you know affects the way you look at potential investments. Yeah. Very good question, by the way. Certainly Warren Buffett is one of the great investors in the world. Um, However, we don't necessarily agree with him on the ease of finding value in Japan. We do have a few holdings in Japan, and we do have uh, quite a bit more in our international small cap fund. An international fund, we have two, and and, um, there's a new one I don't believe I can mention yet because it hasn't been posted. The problem with Japanese equities is when you look at the, what you pay for what you get, and this is how we define value, is kind of the multiple of cash flow, what you get for the return structure of a business. Japan is, has the lowest returning stocks in the world, believe it or not, 7 or 8% return on equity, 7 8 9%. Average Japanese stock. That number in the U.S. is close to 20%, and it's mid to high teens in Europe. And yet the multiple which the Japanese market trades at is significantly higher than Europe and just a little bit below the U.S. And so that's the overall market situation. And I believe one of the reasons for this is is you have had the central bank using ETFs in essence to purchase Japanese equities, thereby artificially driving up the valuations. Same thing, they have a huge pension fund, um, government a huge government pension fund, which also has been a heavy buyer of Japanese stocks. So in essence, it's just hard for us to find quality companies selling at low prices. Not impossible, not at all impossible, but it's just been harder for us. Now, Mr. Buffett is invested in these trading companies. You know, Japan is a big importer of raw materials and other things. And of course, it's an exporter of manufactured products. And these trading companies are kind of the middlemen in between. We don't ever see, it's hard to see a situation where the Japanese economy could structurally grow above the world average. 
And this is because you have a declining population and very low productivity. So for us, it's difficult. We keep looking, by the way. It's not for lack of trying. There was one period of time in my near, what, 37 years of international investing that I was overweight in Japan, and it was right after the earthquake in the year 2011 to about 2014 uh, when share prices fell off a cliff, and we thought there was good value in Japan. But then as over the next two or three years, as price and value converged, we've lightened up. And now, as you rightly point out, we're at a very, very low weighting in Japan, you know, just a couple percent or so, if that. Thank you very much for the explanation. You're welcome. Hi. Um, my question is just related to industrials in general and, and what your thought process is now, um, where they stand, um, how you feel about them. Yeah. Well, again, like any, we look at any business based on the cash flow streams we expect them to generate versus the price we're willing to pay. And we actually see the industrial space is one area that really, really uh, represents or demonstrates uh, a strong value proposition. So, I mean, of course, there are certain exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, you will see that um, you know, we, we're, we're a bit, oh, we're about 16, 17% in the international fund and industrials, and in, in uh, international small cap fund, even more, around 30%. So, we do find this as a uh, pocket of value. Now, one of the things the market often confuses is they think of an industrial business and they think, oh, what if there's a recession and then you know, all the profits are going to dry up? You can't just look at it that way. When you look at an industrial business, you have to look at, A, their operational and financial gearing. And if they have a number of variable costs and low financial gearing, we're satisfied to take on this, the, the volatility risk of a slower growth economy. But you have to look at those factors. You just can't point all industrials with the same brush without examining their operational and their financial gearing. And what we look at our financials, I mean, many of them have significant, have significant levels of excess cash, as well as they've been uh, trying very hard and working hard at making their cost base more variable. When you look at the OEM auto producers in particular, this is the case. That's great. Thanks very much. Have uh, over 20, pushing 30 billion of net net cash on their balance sheet, which they're in essence using to return to their shareholders. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Hello, Jeannie. Hi, David. Really nice to see the portfolio, the performance turning around. Maybe you can have uh, just a quick comment on how things were turning around, and particularly also in the banking sector. Um, uh, what's your view there in the banking and auto sector, which you have been facing uh, uh, quite uh, heavy, um, uh, heavy bets or heavy um, convictions? Now, if anything, if we look at the financial sector first, you'll notice that we continue to see very, very strong, what I would say, basic tailwinds. For the better part of a decade, they faced headwinds. They faced 
headwinds of having to build more and more capital. They faced headwinds of um, more regulation. They faced headwinds of slower growth. Um, and, of course, the biggest headwind, low to negative interest rates, especially in Europe. Now, now we have tailwinds. Now we have growth picking up. We have the banks are overcapitalized, and we have an environment of rising interest rates where they're finally getting interest rates spread. And that while all this is happening, while all this is happening, you still see very, very subdued credit losses. So this is a very, very good environment for the banks. Now, they've done pretty well over the last six to nine months. We've trimmed back a little. In fact, you'll notice in both strategies we're you know, international now, I believe we're slightly underweight, believe it or not, we're underweight, the index, because the index weight has gone up and we've trimmed them a little bit. Um, so we still feel, especially since the in- in- interest rate rise cycle in Europe may even last a touch longer than the U.S., um, this will be relatively good. Um, the autos, again, we've they've done well. They've done very well over the last year. We've trimmed back a little. BMW and and, uh, Mercedes are our two biggest exposures directly to OEMs. And, you know, that number right now is about just over 5% of the portfolio combined. And, of course, we have the auto suppliers, which have not fared as well as the OEMs. Um, And we have auto suppliers in International Fund, two in particular, Valeo Continental, and we have Pirelli in the uh, International Small Cap Fund. Now, this year, they should start to do better as they're able to adjust prices and as we see volumes pick up. So, so far, so good. We're very comfortable we're, we're positioned in those areas. But I will point out in both of those sectors, you're looking at an automobile sector, companies that trade literally at three to four times cash flow with free cash flow yields that far exceed 10%. That is the free cash after they pay working capital and dividends and all this stuff, or not dividends, uh, capital X, after all this is greater than 10%. And that is the same situation that we see with um, the financials. And as a result of this excess cash and these excess profits, they're handing a lot of this back to shareholders. So A, they're generating a ton of it, B, they're handing a lot of it back to us, and C, what they're not handing back to us, they're using to grow their businesses. Great. Thank you, uh, David. Can I ask one more question? You sure can. So uh, you hold um, Alibaba. What do you think of them, their recent plan to split the company into six parts? You know what? I, yeah, of course, the devil's in the exact details, and are they going to be? Pro- are they going to take some of these public? But I think this is this is better. These businesses don't really have a lot in common with each other, and you know what happens when small businesses become big businesses? You get what we used to say in Econ 100: this economies of scale. And you know, similar, by the way, we own the stock called Buyer. This is another prime example of a company that should probably break up into two or three pieces. Uh, we saw some companies do it. We saw Daimler Group break in to Mercedes-Benz and to Daimler Trucks. And it's really been a, a quite successful uh, exercise. And so we think that there is a lot more value to be recognized in a company like Alibaba or Bayer if, if they were to split them into these other businesses. Thank you. 
You're welcome. Um, yeah, if you could just kind of contrast what you're seeing in the European economies and, and companies specifically with what is happening in the U.S. Obviously, you know, in the U.S. we have an inverted yield curve, pretty, pretty severely inverted at this point, and a lot of signposts pointing to pointing to a recession and, um, you know, some, some bank carnage that's been pretty pretty severe. Um, are you – I don't follow the yield curve too closely in Europe. I've noticed that rates have obviously gone up, but is the yield curve there look different? And I guess more importantly, does the economic environment specific to your companies feel, you know, non, non-recessionary to the point where there might be some, you know, some expansion going on there, even if, if it's subdued? Well, the European economies are projected to grow by, you know, most major observers in 2023. Um, the short-term rates in Europe, of course, are still below because, remember, they started raising rates later. So you don't have – now, every market's a little different, by the way, so you can't just say basically Europe because you have the U.K., you have Italy, you have – um, so you have different yield curves for different countries. Um, Germany may be a bit more inverted than, say, Italy, as you know, as, as an example. So, but you know, it looks like, and you know, I'm still not a big believer in the recession case uh, in the U.S. And the reason why I say this is, two thirds of GDP is from the consumer. It is just hard for me to see a deeper, severe recession given you have such a healthy consumer, both in terms of employment and savings, et cetera. So you don't have, like in past recessions, you don't have an excess of leverage in the private sector, whether it be corporate world or the consumer. Recall what caused the last big recession in 07, 08, 09, was heavy leverage against declining assets. We just don't have anything like that today. Now, we're going to have certain areas, certain uh, sectors of the population that will be kind of in a recession because, as you see, the tech area in particular, they're they're laying off people. But there's other areas, interestingly enough, in the service sector and in the trades that are hiring people. So it's, you know, certainly possible. But it, it, for me, it's hard to see a severe recession when you have such a healthy consumer and a, and a flushed-up um, private sector, corporate sector, financial sector. You know, we, there's this talk of this banking crisis. Unlike the last banking crisis, this one it wasn't caused by credit quality issues. You know, the credit quality, even at um, Silicon Valley Bank, was quite good. But to their, I guess let's call it what it is, stupidity, they didn't match their assets and their liabilities from a duration perspective. They took short-term deposits and invested them long-term. So then when those deposits left, guess what? You have these long-term bonds. Now, they're great AA, AAA, single-A securities, but with interest rates going up and you mark these things to market, you've got to take a loss when you sell them to fund your deposits. That was just stupidity. Pure and simple. I still can't believe that people were kind of twiddling their thumbs, not realizing that this was going to happen. In a bank that tripled their deposits in just a few years, what did you think? It's all going to stay in there? Right. 
So <laughs> as a follow-on to that, I think you've talked before about the euro versus the dollar and a purchasing power parity basis. Um, how does that how does that uh, stack up now? And could you see could you see a case for appreciation of the euro versus the dollar? That's obviously been a headwind for the past you know seven to to ten years up until last year. And then what what inning would you say we might be in if if this is a period of international strength? I mean, obviously two thousand to seven was kind of the Oakmark International Golden you know Golden Decade. Um, could we be entering another one now? And if so, how, how early are we in that process? Um, it's very difficult to tell when the timing kind of switches over. But when you look at fundable, uh, fundamental valuations, and as you correctly mentioned, Matt, that we are now in a situation where these currencies are significantly undervalued. So if you take, for instance, uh, let me look at my chart here, um, you know, whether it be the yen, whether it be sterling, whether it be uh, the euro, we all have these things from 10 to 25% in the case of the euro, 23% undervalued, sterling 14% undervalued, um, you know, the yen 25% undervalued. So these currencies, so as, as a foreign investor, you've suffered the pain as they, by the way, they were significantly overvalued six or seven years ago. And when they were, we were hedged against that. But when the pendulum swung all the way to the other side, you know, we unwound the hedges. We don't try to play the currency game. We try to protect investors when they are overvalued. But now they are undervalued. And one of the arguments for at some point this thing to turn is you not only have undervalued home valuations of the companies, but you're buying them using undervalued currencies. There's been a little bit of a bounce, as you could have seen. I think the euro hit a low of what, 101, 102. It's at 109, so 7 or 8%. The yen, you know, I think traded in the 140s and, you know, is now closer to 134. Um, so you saw a little bit of a bounce, but you're exactly right. And so what might, might the catalyst be? Well, if the U.S. stops raising rates while the rest of the world keeps rising rates, that, that might be a um, catalyst because, remember, European rates actually went negative. They were significantly lower than that of the U.S. Uh, at the trough. And so they have some catch-up to do. Thank you. You're welcome. Hello, Ben. Great. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Um, you mentioned earlier in the call that um, that the natural gas situation, they were able to address it with uh, – with conservation as well as some new new supply from Norway and increasing supply from the United States. Um, that, of course, was during a time of unseasonably um, or, you know, un unusually warm weather in, in Europe. And I'm wondering how you feel they would be positioned um, if we saw a more normal environment in the winter um, or even a, a colder environment, how, um, whether you feel like the um, industrials, for, for instance, in Germany, um, are positioned to um, to get back to business as usual. If we were to you know, to see a more normal weather pattern, yeah, you know what's what's interesting is that um, one of the things I've watched is the European storage levels, and they ended usually when they end the season, they end it with about twenty to three, twenty to thirty percent full. 
Sometimes it gets even a little lower than that. They ended it this year at 50% full. And already there's certain days I see that they're adding to this. So they have now, they've got a really big head start to fill that those storage levels. And at the same time, what's happening is now there's talks of delaying of shutting down the nuclear plants in Germany, which I, I never quite understood why they were shutting down nuclear plants in Germany. They're concerned about CO2 emissions and, and energy independence. Uh, you know, here's a CO emission-free uh, energy source. But it, they really have been bought. They've received more time. They've received more time, and at the same time, they have more storage. So what you will see is more and more. Um, by the way, there was a great Wall Street Journal article on how they built a, a plant, a gas plant in Germany in less than a year, uh, so they could take imports and liquefy natural gas. Um, so I think this all of the above, even with a colder winter. And the winter, by the way, the winter started off warm in Europe, but it ended kind of normal. But even with that, I think, I think, touch wood, they'll, they'll be in decent position, especially since storage is, they'll be starting um, with, with a much, much higher gas and storage level than they have in previous winters. Yeah. But you oh, see natural gas prices. I mean, this is kind of amazing around the world. Yeah. Even in the U.S., even as petroleum prices go up, I mean, we just seem to be swimming in it. Um, but, you know, you have to transport it. Gas is not like oil. Oil, you put it in a tanker, and it can go anywhere. Gas, there has to be a pipeline or a terminal, or you're not going to get it. And so these places that got shut off by the Russian Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines from Russia, by the way, there's some of it's coming through the back door from Turkey, so even Europe is getting some Russian gas, even though they're not getting Russian gas. <laughs> it's a funny world, isn't it? Um, so, you know, some of it is coming back door through Turkey, but it finds a way. It finds a way to markets, but the oil is easy to find a way to market. Gas is hard to find a way, but if you get it, give them enough time, as I mentioned, the, the uh, the liquefaction plants that they built, and now they're building, you know, they're having these ships off the coast that do this. Um, you know, they're preparing themselves. They're preparing themselves. I wish they would have done it a lot earlier, but, you know, better late than never. Yeah. Uh, one other way, really great question. Oh, in Europe, a lot of the industrial companies in Europe, the auto ones, the big ones, are, are putting in place their own power generation equipment, usually fueled by renewables. And it was, I, I understand that they had actually shut down some chemical um, plants to try to, as part of the conservation, is that um, something that, are, are they, is, those, is that still offline? I think maybe BASF had had, had, had some, um, some shutdowns. Is all that back up and running? Yeah, I, I, we don't own BASF, but you're exactly right. They did shut down some plants. But it seems to me when I remember reading the CEO's comments, I don't think he was going to turn them back on again. Mm -hmm. All right. Especially when your customers are in Asia. A lot of your customers are in Asia, and it's just hard to compete yeah. against the Asians. One other quick question. Um, I, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to put you in a box, I promise, but just sort of comparing your performance with, um, you know, growth, it seemed like really outperformed value generally and certainly in, in, uh, in EFED. Um, and yet your, your performance was more, was more growth-like, but I always consider you kind of a deep value manager. Was there any sort of 
shift in um, in the in sort of the 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 feel of the fund in terms of growth versus value, or is it just that that the the higher quality low low value names happen to rally this um, in this um, particular quarter? You make a couple of very good points, by the way. First of all, I wouldn't necessarily consider as deep value because I would associate deep value managers with ones that really focus on the price of a company. Remember, we look at the price. That's a low price is a necessary and sufficient condition. But you also have to look at what you are getting in terms of growth and a return structure. I mean, if it's a low price company that is a 3% ROE, you know, we're not really interested because if you can't, you know, if your return on capital isn't greater than the cost of capital, then you're destroying value. And that positive slope and value creation is to what causes price and value to converge over time, number one. Number two is what fits our value criteria does change over time. I'm going to give you an extreme period. In December of 08, People wanted, you know, this was right almost at the bottom. We didn't know at the time, by the way, but it was near the bottom of the global financial crisis. We are overweight consumer discretionary and industrials and these businesses, financials, that just got absolutely clobbered. But then what happened by the time you get to 2000 and end of 2009, a year later, you see the complexion changed rather differently because what was expensive became cheap, and what was cheap became expensive. By the way, very similar. Do you remember old economy, new economy, uh, post the, the tech bubble crash? Um, when the tech bubble crashed in around 2000, in around 2000 um, the old economy stocks at first were very cheap, and the tech companies were expensive. By the time you got to 2007, 2008, it completely flip-flopped. Those old value stocks is where everyone piled into, and that was like the eight years of value investing uh, Valhalla. I mean, this was the great period of time of value investing when it completely flip-flops. So we stay focused on what I call the Oakmark-Harris value proposition, what you get for the price you pay. That is our, our framework for analyzing a business and deciding whether it's attractive or not. And what, what marches through that framework can change. It usually happens gradually, but in some periods it happens a bit quicker than in others. Well, congratulations on a great quarter. Um, <laughs> glad, to, uh, glad to see some of those names starting to command uh, more reasonable prices. Thank you. Thank you. If there are no further questions, we will chat with you all. In three months, uh, hopefully we could keep the momentum going. But like I said, I'm not so concerned about short term. I'm more concerned about opportunities we're seeing. And whether it be new idea flow or evaluation of the portfolio, uh, I think you know we discussed this, that we're able to buy undervalued businesses using undervalued currencies. We are feeling very good about how we're positioned today. So we're optimistic about the future. So thank you again for all your support, and we look forward to talking in three months.
Important information. Average annualized total returns for Oakmark International Fund investor shares as of March 31, 2023. 3-month 13.91%. Year-to-date 13.91%. 1-year 5.22%. 3-years 21.10%. 5-years 1.46%. 10-year 5.04%. Average annualized total returns for MSCI World XUSA Index. Net. As of March 31, 2023. 3-month 8.02%. Year-to-date 8.02%. 1-year minus 2.74%. 3-years 13.49%. 5-years 3.80%. 10-year 4.91%. Average annualized total returns for Oakmark International Small Cap Fund investor shares as of March 31, 2023. 3-month 6.56%. Year-to-date 6.56%. 1-year 2.78%. 3 years 22.71%. 5-years 3.49%. 10-year 5.60%. Average annualized total returns for MSCI World XUSA Small Cap Index. Net. As of March 31, 2023. 3-month 4.99%. Year-to-date 4.99%. 1-year 10.13%. 3-years 13.4%. 3%, 5 years 1.53%, 10 year 5.54%. Performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold. Current performance may be lower or higher than quoted. For most recent month-end performance, visit imnotixis.com. Performance for other share classes will be greater or less based on differences in fees and sales charges. Performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized. Returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains, if any. The views and opinions expressed may change based on market and other conditions. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The index information contained herein is derived from third parties and is provided on an as-is basis. The user of this information assumes the entire risk of use of this information. Each of the third-party entities involved in compiling, computing or creating index information disclaims all warranties, including, without limitation, any warranties of originality, accuracy, completeness, timeliness, non-infringement, mercantility and fitness for a particular purpose. With respect to such information, Definitions of terms used in this material MSCI World XUSA Index is an unmanaged index that is designed to measure the equity market performance of developed markets, excluding the United States. MSCI World Index, NET, is an unmanaged index that is designed to measure the equity market performance of developed markets. It is comprised of common stocks of companies representative of the market structure of developed market countries in North America, Europe, and the Asia-Pacific region. The index is calculated without dividends, with net or with gross dividends reinvested, in both US dollars and local currencies. EBIT refers to earnings before interest and taxes and is a measure of a firm's profit that includes all incomes and expenses. Operating and non-operating except interest expenses and income tax expenses. Enterprise value. EV is a measure of the company's total value. Enterprise value is a popular metric used to value a company for a potential takeover. VAT. Value-added tax. Is a consumption tax placed on a product whenever value is added at each stage of the supply chain. From production to the point of sale. The amount of VAT that the user pays is on the cost of the product. Less any of the costs of materials used in the product that have already been taxed. A commodity is a basic good used in commerce that is interchangeable with other goods of the same type. Commodities are most often used as inputs in the production of other goods or services. American depository receipt. ADR is a negotiable certificate issued by a U.S. depository bank representing a specified number of shares, often one share, of a foreign company's stock, gross domestic product. GDP is the total monetary or market value of all the finished goods and services produced within a country's borders in a specific time period. IP or intellectual property benchmarking is used to assess and evaluate an organization's position by comparing their intangible assets with those of competitors' manufacturers' suggested retail price. MSRP is the price that a product's manufacturer recommends it be sold for a point of sale. Return on equity, Rho, is the measure of a company's net income divided by its shareholders' equity. Rho is a gauge of a corporation's profitability and how efficiently it generates those profits. ECB is an acronym for the European Central Bank. Top 10 portfolio holdings for the Oakmark International Fund as of March 31, 2023. Mercedes-Benz Group 3.13%. BNP Paribas 3.09%. Intesa San Paolo 3.01%. Lloyds Banking Group 
2.4%, BMW 2.67%, Bayer 2.64%, Continental 2.62%, Alliance 2.55%, Alibaba Group 2.41%, Process 2.29%, Top 10 Portfolio Holdings for the Oakmark International Small Cap Fund as of March 31, 2023, Conic Rains 3.61%, Azimuth Holding 3.30%, Julius Bayer Group 3.09%, Fluidra 3.02%, Travis Perkins 3.01%, Software AG 2.97%, Addy 2.90%, Dur 2.82%, St. James's Place 2.63%, Aplus Services 2.57%. Portfolio holdings are subject to change without notice and are not intended as recommendations of individual stocks. The gross expense ratio for Oakmark International Fund Class I shares is 1.04% and the net expense ratio is 1.04%. As of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 27, 2024. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same. The gross expense ratio for Oakmark International Small Cap Fund Class I shares is 1.34% and the net expense ratio is 1.34%. As of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 27, 2024. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same. The portfolio is actively managed and characteristics, holdings or sectors are subject to change. References to specific securities or industries should not be considered a recommendation. For current characteristics, holdings or sectors please visit our website. All investing involves risk, including risk of loss, fund risks, Oakmark International Fund and International Small Cap Fund risks. Equity securities are volatile and can decline significantly in response to broad market and economic conditions. Value investing carries the risk that a security can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time. Foreign and emerging market securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Currency exchange rates between the U.S. dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline. Concentrated investments in a particular region, sector, or industry may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in that industry or the market as a whole. Additional risk for Oakmark International Small Cap Fund. Smaller company investments can be more volatile than those of larger companies. Before investing in any Oakmark fund, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, management fees and other expenses. This and other important information is contained in a fund's prospectus and summary prospectus. Please read the prospectus and summary prospectus carefully before investing. For more information, please call 1-800-OAKMARK-625-6275. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of April 11, 2023 and may change based on market and other conditions. Natixis Distribution, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, is a marketing agent for the Oakmark Funds, a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Pod 62 April, 2023, Adtrax ID, 1482391, 291, expiration date, July 31, 2023.